just get right down to business. The Joe Roberts Show. This, this is The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. On today's episode, we're going to discuss Solana Wormhole Hack, Helium Network still growing strong, the Frog Nation Rug Pull, the IRS staking settlement, and the macro update. I have my guest, Justin Green, with me today. Justin, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking. That's awesome. Let's roll right into the Solana wormhole hack. I figure that's right up your alley. You like to follow the Solana chain. What's happening there? A pretty disastrous hack uh, at at the outset, actually. About 120,000 Ether was taken in this hack out of bridge collateral. And I think that's on the order of 200 something million dollars, uh, given the current market price of ETH. So a very large hack, one of the largest in DeFi history. So the way this works is that users who want to bring Ether onto Solana, there's a number of ways of doing it, but one of the ways is to use this bridge called Wormhole. And you basically send your Ether to an address on the Ethereum blockchain, and then that credits you Ether on Solana. And if you want to go the other way, you send your Ether back to Wormhole on Solana, and they'll send you the Ether on the Ethereum layer one. And so this two-way bridge has been used for a while I think Wormhole first came out early last year and they're on version two right now. And so it's clearly been used a lot in in the Solana ecosystem, given that there's hundreds of millions of dollars in this bridge. And an attacker a few days ago was able to drain that collateral ether out of the bridge. So what happened was the attacker on the Solana side minted themselves 120,000 Wormhole ether. And then with this wormhole ether that was technically backed by nothing, they redeemed 80,000 of that back to the Ethereum layer one. And then on the Solana side, they took 40,000 of that and they traded that into Sol and and USDC. So there was still some ether left in the bridge collateral, but most of it was taken in this redemption. And for the most part, wormhole ether on Solana, for all intents and purposes, was worthless. Fortunately, Jump Trading, the group that actually owns Wormhole, committed their own money to re-collateralizing the system. They put Ether back in the collateral. And so everything is going smooth right now. And we narrowly dodged a bullet because, man, I'm telling you, if this thing was not re-collateralized, we could have seen havoc in the Solana DeFi ecosystem. What is the whole purpose of the bridge to begin with? Is that so people can participate within the EVM ecosystem like and be able to go back and forth or what is the deal yeah so if you want to take advantage of solana's scalability right you want the the cheap transaction fees and the rapid pace you can issue transactions on solana you can bring your ether over to that chain with wormhole and, and other ways and then you can deposit it in AMMs. you can trade it you can lend it out and things like that i think most people were using it in AMMs and and lending markets so those two categories of DeFi apps had a lot of existential risk with this hack because potentially you would have had all these AMM pairs drained. So, you know, if, if wormhole ether could have just been minted and dumped into these AMMs, then that means you can just drain all the other side of that collateral. You know, if it's USDC or whatever, you just start trading all this ether into it and taking out the USDC. And also anyone who holds legitimate wormhole ether would have been dumping it, get whatever money out they can. On the lending market side, we could have had bad debt where 
someone deposits a bunch of wormhole ether and they borrow against that. But if the wormhole ether is worthless, you now have this outstanding debt that's not backed by any collateral. So you would potentially see some sort of socialized losses in the lending markets where they'd have to haircut all the depositors. You know, it's like if you deposited some USDC in the lending market, you might only get 80% of that back because they had to pay off that debt. So something like that could have gone down if we didn't see this recollateralization of the system. I mean, from a, uh, you know, a trust, trust score, how, how do people kind of move forward with this? I mean, obviously, Solana's had quite a few problems in the last couple months. Yeah, I mean, I think dump trading, recollateralizing it with their own money gives a lot of confidence to the ecosystem. The Solana ecosystem is very well capitalized. There's a lot of money behind it. And I think everyone in the Solana ecosystem is kind of on the same page. You know, we want to build this really fast blockchain. We want everything to work very nice for the mass market. And people see the potential growth of this ecosystem in the future and how, you know, if it becomes a global ledger for global finance. This thing is going to be absolutely massive. So firms like Jump Trading, they're looking at this. Yeah, you know, it's a three hundred million dollar loss. Obviously, that is an incredible amount of money to just commit for customer deposits. But it shows the faith that the participants have in the ecosystem, and that if they're willing to to put this much money down, that means that they think they can make it back in the future. And so I think on the other side of this issue, we actually have growing confidence that the players in this ecosystem, they're going to be able to take this to the next level. And they're going to really commit all of their effort and all of their money to bringing Solana to the mass market. So I, I kind of see this as like a bullish hack. You know, It's one of those cases where, <laughs> where you buy the dip if it crashed from this hack because this really shows the strength of the ecosystem and how it repairs itself and how it's really anti-fragile in, in adversity. With these type of applications, what is the ability for jump trading to pursue some type of legal action against the entity that might have been the person that stole the funds? Yeah, it's a difficult issue because the courts, they don't like dealing with crypto stuff. It's very ambiguous in the law. Most countries don't have solid precedent on crypto cases. You know, This would be, I guess, considered a theft of property. So they'd have to treat it like that. I think the case to watch right now is the, the indexed finance case in Canada, which we talked about a few episodes ago. They do have, I believe, an outstanding warrant against the person that committed the crime or committed the hack in that case. So we are seeing legal systems now recognize this theft and, and go after people. It just comes down to, can you actually identify the person and have some good evidence that it was them doing the hack? And do you have sympathetic judges? So there's definitely an avenue for junk trading and, and other players in Wormhole to pursue the hacker, but obviously they have to identify them first. The hacker, I believe, has already deposited funds in the Tornado Cash mixer. So they're washing that money. They're trying to you know, hide their identity on the other side and get some, some ether that is not traced to this hack. However, exchanges have wisened up to Tornado Cash. And if you participate in Tornado Cash, your address is kind of tainted. And you're going to have exchanges asking you a lot of questions if you try to you know, cash out a large sum of money. So the hacker might have to go to more sophisticated means to actually get some use out of this money. Or less regulated exchanges. Less regulated, yeah. You know, like the whole, the whole BTCE drama, things like that, right? There's always going to be shady exchanges that are going to do some business with you. But with this amount of money, it's 
really hard to hide that on the blockchain. And I feel like there's going to be sleuths, especially with all the capital that uh, Jump Trading and the Solana ecosystem has behind it. This person has now a $300 million bounty on their head. So uh, they better they better watch out and hopefully that they work out some sort of white hat agreement. That would be the best scenario for everybody. You know, return 90% of the funds and keep 10%. I think something like that was offered already. So they should just take that and, and call it a day. I, <laughs> hey, 10% of that would be a nice bounty, right? Right, right. I don't know why you, anyone wouldn't take this. Like, how greedy are you that you're not going to take $30 million, you know, but you need that $300 million that is now tainted. So I don't know what goes through these people's heads. So I guess, obviously, this might spur a debate on going multi-chain and using the bridges that are coming out versus using just ETH and maybe it's roll-ups. What is your position there? Yeah, so we have people saying now that this is an example of why the Ethereum roadmap is the way to go for the future. Because you don't end up with these bridges with all the funds you know, bridged potentially through multiple hops in different chains and all of the security dependencies that you build up there. There's definitely a solid argument there. Vitalik recently posted on his blog about this exact point before the wormhole hack even. So it was a bit, bit of a you know, prophecy. But there is definitely some truth that in the long run, blockchains are going to minimize their security dependencies. And the vast majority of money in this ecosystem is going to be at the most secure layers. When you're doing billion dollar transactions, you're going to want to minimize the amount of code that you have to worry about and the amount of trust in that. So this certainly makes the case for Ethereum layer one and Ethereum 2.0 being a so-called settlement layer for these high value transactions. And yeah, you're going to be paying exorbitant transaction fees, but what you're really paying for is this assurance that everything is going to work right. And you're going to be able to take this money from the Ethereum layer one settlement layer over to the rollups, and that's going to give you your high-speed, low-fee DeFi. But what I think is missing out of this argument is the dependency on the roll-up operators themselves. There is an infrastructure associated with rollups that in some cases is a bit centralized. You're dealing with so-called relayers, fraud proofers, zero-knowledge proof generators. There's a lot of infrastructure there that is probably going to end up running in data centers or running on AWS, right? You know, you know, you need these beefy computers to process all this stuff. And so that's an element of centralization I think people are not paying as much credence to when they point out these multi-chain flaws. The other thing I'll say is that the bridge technology is getting a lot better day by day. And hacks like this only harden it and make it stronger in the long run. Um, and we're we're on the verge of seeing some new bridge technology that I think is going to be very bullish for the multi-chain ecosystem that allows a lot less trust and a lot more crypto economics behind the security of these bridges. And I'm really talking about in the Definity project, they're on the verge of releasing a Bitcoin integration that allows you to more or less hold Bitcoin, but on the internet computer blockchain with their technology called Chain Key Crypto that allows a private key to be sharded up between a bunch of nodes. And so the funds are really held by smart contracts in the network. And these shards of a private key that correspond to some Bitcoin address, no single node knows the private key. So they can't just steal the funds. You know, you need all the nodes in the network really, or something like two thirds plus one of them to 
collude in order to do anything. And you've got some crypto economic security behind that. So more advanced designs like that, I think, are going to make the bridge situation a lot better. And so I would say it's too early to tell where the majority of the funds end up. Is it in some sort of role of ecosystem or is it just sort of scattered all over these different chains with different uh, properties? I don't think anyone really knows right now. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Everyone would like to make a case, but I think it's still early. I think there's going to definitely be different niches for different areas of security and everything across multiple chains. Yeah, you might as well bet on both, you know, if you if you have to bet. So that's what I'm doing, certainly. All right. So let's roll into obviously Helium Network. A lot of people have been talking about Helium Network over the last year. It's probably one of the very few projects that has expanded the most and has come to market. Their hotspots are increasingly going across the globe. What is happening there? Yeah. Helium Network is firing on all cylinders. That project is moving really fast. And even in this bear market, they're still seeing incredible growth. Not necessarily in the token price. You know, the token price, it's still down something like 40%, 50% from the highs. But among all the other coins, it's definitely a, a leader in terms of you know, minimizing losses there. I think there has been some buying interest. And on the network side, they are adding nodes to this network like crazy. Just in the last 30 days, they've added something like 80,000 nodes. These are wireless hotspots. And in 2021, they added something like 450,000 nodes to the network where they, they started the year at like 10 or 15,000 nodes. So they are definitely an exponential growth trend. And it is really proving out this technology, I think, because it's hard to execute on something like this. Helium is a very complex product. And now that they have to deal with wireless radios and hardware, it's definitely ventured into another realm of complexity compared to something like Ethereum that is just only focused on software. They've really got their work cut out for them, but their ability to execute has been proved out with what they've built over the last year. So just to give a, a quick primer on Helium, what they have right now is a long-range WAN network. And so this operates on, on lower frequency bands, and, and it's really meant for like IoT sensors, temperature sensors, GPS trackers, things like that, because you're not going to get crazy speeds right now. You're going to get like one megabit a second, and it's going to be expensive. But the reason they went for that type of radio technology is because the long range aspect of it means that you can build a resilient network without that many nodes. So, you know, it's not like you have to have, imagine if they were doing Wi Fi, right? It would be very patchy until they got nodes like every 30 feet in the entire world, right? It would just be <laughs> a difficult network to build up. So they started with this long range technology so they can sort of blanket the world in their network, but they are pivoting to 5G. So there are going to be 5G hotspots on this network. And I think that's really going to be where this thing takes off because yeah, IoT sensors and, and things like that are great, but how much are people really going to pay for IoT? I don't know if the market for that is as big as the market for data on you know, high-speed networks like 5G, where people want to stream Netflix and things like that. If you could pay in H&T tokens, and that, that's your cell provider bill, you no longer pay Verizon, you no longer pay AT&T, you just have some H&T tokens, and you wander around and you pick up this 5G network, that really is a killer product. And I think that is, one, is what's going to allow Helium to grow to mass adoption. So... We really want to keep an eye on Helium and when they're releasing this 5G stuff. 
They're also about to release these so-called light hotspots where you're able to run a hotspot on a Raspberry Pi with a little radio adapter. So this is going to help scale the network with cheaper hardware and you know lower the cost to participants getting in and to start mining HNT. This basically allows you to run these little hotspots without running a full node. Because running a full node on uh, the Helium network takes a beefy computer right now. And so that's been a big complaint from, from users as they have to you know, have their server basically sitting next to their radio so that they can mine. And that's just, again, increasing the costs to set up this network. So the light nodes is going to let them scale out a lot more. And then the 5G is going to take this to the next level of functionality. I would definitely say that 2022 is going to be a great year for Helium. Everyone should be watching this and, and trying to get involved if you can. That's awesome. I mean, how, do, how, how can an investor actually like forecast out the price and kind of where it goes with the network? And ultimately, do you tie that to the amount of hotspots that may be on the network, the amount of users? What is, what's your thoughts? Yeah, given that everything in crypto is, is priced in such a growth mentality, everyone is just sort of projecting a future total addressable market and then just sort of discounting that back, you know, 10 years, 20 years, something like that. It's hard to look at fundamental metrics and say, you know, this is the justifiable price right now. But it does help you inform the ability to execute and the, you know, ability to reach that TAM when you see a lot of growth on the network and it's handling it well. And I think it also shows validation of the thesis when you've got so many people onboarding. We won't really know if Helium is profitable until they start onboarding a lot of users. I mean, right now, I think they're only making a few thousand dollars a day or, or a week or something amount, some, some small amount from the actual data costs. Most of the revenue that Helium is seeing right now is actually miners who are joining the network. And you have to burn some Helium in order to do that. And so this is really just sort of, you know, not real revenue from the network's perspective that you're seeing these burns right now. And the main concern I have in, in the medium term about HNT is that it's got a lot of inflation going on right now. And that inflation halves every two years. I think they've only been through one recently. So we've got another year and a half or so before the next one. And if the network can't get a solid amount of revenue in that time, you're going to potentially see some downside on this as that inflation eats into the returns. So I would say if you're a new investor looking at Helium, you might want to wait and, and watch the revenue numbers and, and watch real adoption on the data transfer side. You know, you want to see people actually paying HT for data transfer. And that's going to be a key that this growth is going to outscale the inflation. But you know, until the next happening or so, that high inflation is going to be uh, challenging for this network. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to buying the uh, data credits, I definitely am looking at who, who are those customers, right? Because it's very limited at this time. Right, right. I mean, we're, again, we're talking about IoT stuff, you know, temperature sensors, GPS trackers, fridges, right? Any, anything that can just report a small amount of data and call it a day. And personally, I don't see people jumping over heels to, to pay for that sort of thing, right? They want to pay for actual internet. They want to actually use this as their sole ISP. When Helium reaches that level, I think, yeah, you're going to justify some high multiples on this. But it remains to be seen, can they pull this off? But definitely watch out for this 5G network because that is what potentially takes it to the next level. 
part that's also let's leave off there. And next, <laughs> a lot of drama the last week or two when it comes to the Frog Nation. Daniela built up a lot of trust with people in the ecosystem over the last couple of months. What is happening there? Yeah, I mean, uh, what a shit show going on right now. I mean, I, I'm fortunate that I, I didn't put any money in this thing in the last couple of months when I seen it take off. But I, I would be remiss if I didn't say I was tempted to, given the crazy APYs that this thing was, was generating. I mean, basically, you have these two projects, right? You've got Abracadabra, which was the first one that's sort of like a, a collateralized stablecoin, MakerDAO type of system. Wonderland, which is an ohm fork on Avalanche. And it was the same guy, Danny, the core developer from Abracadabra who, who launched Wonderland. And it was supposed to be all under this umbrella frog mission, you know, some, you know, multiple projects collaborating together and having tight integrations. So in this case, the treasury of Wonderland included a lot of the stablecoin MIM, magical internet money. Uh, it's using it for getting yield on curve and things like that. But the drama started when some community members found out that one of the treasury managers for Wonderland and one of the, the core leaders in the community, this guy Sifu, was actually a convicted felon and serial scam artist from Quadriga CX and Ruler Protocol, credit card fraud. I mean, he had a, he had a rap sheet of scams and fraud. And through private messages and community posts and, and people constructing this timeline, it appears that Danny knew about all of this, knew about his past, and brushed it under the rug, still allowed him to be a community member. And it had this whole idea of, you know, he's a good guy underneath, but, you know, yeah, he's got a trouble past. It's not a big deal. However, he failed to tell the community any of this, even though he's managing something like $800 million worth of money in, in the Wonderland treasury. This obviously caused a lot of outrage in the community and a lot of people wanted to unwind Wonderland. You know, that basically that would mean liquidating the treasury assets and allowing people to redeem their Wonderland tokens, I think it's called time, for assets in the treasury. Now, I, I'm not sure on whether or not they would get exactly what the token is worth, if it was trading at a premium or discount, but for the most part, it would not be a huge loss to users. They could unwind this thing. So the community went ahead with the vote and the vote actually failed to unwind the system. But they did successfully vote out Sifu as a, a treasury manager. And so I think he's off the multi-sig now. But he's basically running away with the money because he was seen sending a lot of money to Tornado Cash and you know millions of dollars worth of ether and it's like well where did he get this ether probably somehow siphoned it out of the the wonderland system you know i mean the money most of the money is still there uh again it, it's a multi-sig so it's not like he can just take money out of the treasury but somehow he got out with with millions of dollars and it's not a good look for this project and obviously it looks like he's just rug pulling once again it's just apparently in his nature to do that you know so i don't know what this danny guy was thinking maybe he was complicit in this who knows I don't know how they're going to move forward from this. You know, even if they don't unwind the system, I mean, who's going to want to be a user for this protocol if the management has been so disdainful of diligence and so loose with the managing of these funds? I mean, for example, back in December, Danny announced that the Wonderland Treasury had market sold $100 million worth of AVAX 
And there was no announcement. There was no community discussion around this. It just seems like they're just trading this treasury willy nilly. And they're not professional finance people. They're not, you know, they don't have any background in trading or anything like that. So it caused a lot of concerns, rightfully so. I definitely looked at this and I was like, man, I'm not putting any money into this thing. This is not in the spirit of DeFi. Just have people YOLO your customer deposits however they want. And I think this whole saga really highlights the need for more sophisticated DeFi treasury management tools. Ultimately, every DeFi treasury is a fund. And we need controls around what these fund managers can do. I really like, for example, uh, the Enzyme protocol that allows you to restrict the fund managers to, to only trading certain assets. And you can restrict how they trade them and the size of the trades, etc. So that the, the customers actually know what is possible with their money. I highly doubt anyone that deposited into Wonderland knew that they would be flipping AVAX tokens you know, randomly. So, you know, it's not, it's not a good look again for this project. I don't know what's going to happen next, but I can't see this really ending well for people involved. Most investors on the surface, they look at that yield, they're attracted by it, they ape in, they don't really know what's going on beyond the scenes. And as long as everything's going well, then they're not really concerned until the day of reckoning actually happens. And then they actually are concerned. It's kind of, you kind of ape in and due diligence later, right? Right, right. You buy first and then you, then you research. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think in this case, though, since we were sort of at the tail end of this epic bull run, most people just bought in without even any research. And only now are they finding out that it's been backed by this treasury, you know, that is managed by these sketchy people. And I don't think people realized the risk that they were exposed to here. So again, just another, another lesson for the DeFi community. And I hope that people learn that you can't just entrust your money to a you know a three out of five multi-sig or whatever they had and, and call that DeFi. That is that is not DeFi, my friend. When you, you talk about decentralization, you know, it's typically not a KYC type of thing. But do you think at the end of the day, like from a regulatory standpoint, like if they were to accept being able to some of these projects to work the way they're going, but they have to maybe register KYC the multi-sig so it's very transparent of who has the funds in and who is responsible up front, that that could be a way to solve a lot of this. I mean I know all these protocols, they all have these multi-sig wallets, but no one really knows who it is. Or if one person has five and some type of identity service that could validate that would maybe make it more of a legitimate project moving forward. Yeah, certainly. I think there is a role for KYC and for regulators to come in and make sure that, you know, yeah, there's not the same person twice on the multi-sig or that these people actually have their personal reputation at stake. And I think ultimately... What has to happen for these multi-sigs and for the, these leaders and, and treasury managers in DeFi is there has to be something at stake for them if things go wrong, right? It can't just be all the power with no risk. There has to be some sort of consequences to these people if they mismanage the funds or you know if the customers get upset about what they're doing. The only way we do that is either, like you're saying, through regulation, through making these people known, at least maybe privately to, to certain legal responsible parties, or through some sort of decentralized identity solution. You know, like we've got these multi-sig signers tied to some decentralized identity, and that reputation has real value. And if they burn that identity, they have to start all over and, and you know, create a new Anon account or something like that. So it's really going to come down to what's at stake for the multi-sig signers.
I'm confident that that DeFi can come up with a decentralized solution and that we're not going to have to go around and KYC everybody. But I think until we do have that solution, it might take a while. Yeah, I think people are probably going to look towards multi-six signers being real people and being known in the community. But ultimately, we need to minimize the irresponsible parties effectively. Yes, yes. The people like Sifu, you know, if everyone knew who, the, who this person was at the outset, no one would have put a dollar into this thing. So potentially, these anonymous multi-sigs are going to go the wayside in the fallout of this, or at least be diminished in their ability to raise funds because it might just be Sifu again. You don't know. <laughs> he, might be, he, he, might be, he might be three out of the five on the multi-sig and then you're screwed. So yeah, this, this is really going to have downstream effects, I think, on, on what people trust going forward. All the investors that are, are listening and they're probably wondering, they see all these DeFi protocols or treasuries spin up and all of a sudden they got a million dollars or a billion dollars almost under management. You know, and they're probably sitting there like, why can't I do this myself? Or how are they getting traction? I mean, give us insights there. Yeah, well, you know, it's really whatever goes viral on Twitter or whatever social media, right? If you can, if you can get the memes going and you can get people retweeting and, and creating memes, that's really what it takes to get a billion dollars these days. And so in the case of Wonderland, they had this whole frog nation thing. And I mean, the, the whole frog meme craze, that's been going on for a while. So they kind of jumped on that and just made it a lot of fun because I think what people are looking for right now is to not only have access to alternative investments, but to have fun while they're doing it. And the memes make it fun. I'm not going to lie. I mean, it's hilarious, you know, watching your Twitter feed and seeing all these people YOLO a million dollars into this thing, but create a meme about it. So if you can capture that, I think you can get a lot of users if you really make finance fun. But on the flip side, you have to watch out because if there's too many memes, that means there's not a lot, enough substance. There's not enough people actually looking into this thing. What's going on with the money? So it's kind of two sides of the coin. And if you are a person entering this space and you're asking yourself, how can I make myself unique and, and, and attractive to the market? I think you, you, you do want to take advantage of the memes, but you want to bring this, this rigor that we don't have right now. We need more people that are, you know, have sophisticated financial backgrounds and are willing to put in the work to regulate themselves and set up a well-designed smart contract system that limits their ability to mismanage the funds and have a lot of transparency in their decision-making with the community. I think all of that is needed right now in the DeFi ecosystem. So if you can bring that and you can level up what other players are doing, I think you have something unique to offer. And most of these yields on these projects that launch like this with the memes are typically, you know, 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 percent, right? And maybe not, and typically never sustainable. So does somebody who spins up a project with an eight and a half percent return that is sustainable over a long period of time going to get the memes that they need to get traction in this space? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Meaning, you know, if someone's doing something a little bit more legitimate and long lasting, you know, how is that going to work versus someone who's creating a temporary fix to create a meme culture and then ultimately dies off like we've, we're seeing right now? Yeah, the the thousand percent APYs and things like that. I think we're, I think we're in the tens of thousands of percent APYs now with the with the own forks. You know, I I think when that first came out, people would get starry eyed about it. But I think people are now realizing that there's no real true thirty thousand percent APY. The inflation will just eat those returns, and so you're not actually trusting that number. 
I don't know if you can come out with an 8% APY on the other hand and really get the market interested in, in what you got going on right now. I think rather than focusing on the APY, I think you're going to have to focus on security and transparency and self-regulation. I think that's what the market is looking for in the wake of all these hacks. And that is going to be what you highlight to the market and what you highlight to the community to really make yourself stand out. It's not going to be about the APYs. You might have a dismal APY, but the people that got hacked or the people that lost money in Wonderland, they're going to be looking at your transparency and your security. And they're going to say, yeah, this is actually what I want to put my money in. I agree there. Let's roll on to last, just in the news, last couple of days. Obviously, all crypto people want to minimize their tax liability as much as possible legally, right? At least most of them want to be legal. <laughs> so we have the uh, staking case come out from uh, Tezos Staking. You know, tell us more about that, what's happening there. So a couple sued the IRS in regards to a tax refund. I guess they had filed their taxes for their Tezos staking rewards, like how everybody else is doing it right now, where you basically treat your rewards as income at the time of receipt. So every, every block, really, you get a taxable event. Of course, this creates a reporting nightmare. It creates forced selling for stakers. You know, that means every year you have to sell some of your stake for the, for the taxes. And so this couple sued the IRS saying that actually they want to amend their return and get a refund because this is, it should not be treated like this. It should be treated where you tax the funds when you actually sell it, not when you receive it in a block. So the IRS decided to just settle out of court, never actually went to court as far as I know. They basically just said, yeah, okay, we'll give you the few thousand dollars you're, you're requesting. So crypto Twitter ran with this and said, yeah, this, this means the IRS now has a new precedent where all staking rewards, <laughs> you know, you, you tax it when you sell it, not when you, when you get the rewards. This is not that. There's been a couple of tax firms that have, that have tweeted on this where, you know, they're basically saying the same thing, that this is a low-level court settlement, but not guidance or, or not law on how you should treat your taxes. And it's going to come down to your individual circumstances and your relationship with the IRS, let's say, if, you, if you're actively suing them or not, whether or not you're going to treat your, your staking rewards as taxable in moments or taxable when you sell. But this is a positive sign that we could see guidance later on come out along these lines. And that would be a boon to the staking industry because it would be one of the few areas in the world where you can sort of grow your wealth on a compounding return without having to get taxed in the interim. But given that the IRS treats mining as income when you receive the, the mining rewards in a block, I have a hard time seeing that they are going to treat staking in a different way, you know, because it looks very similar. And there is an argument that if you have dominion and control over the funds, that technically is you owning and receiving those funds. And so when you get staking rewards, you have control over that. You can get them right away. And so even if they're sitting in another account that you have to claim or whatever, that act of claiming isn't really significant. Like you still own the funds. It's like transferring between wallets. So I could see the IRS arguing you know, against it in that light. However, 
I fully encourage people to sue the IRS and, and figure this out. You know, let's get more, <laughs> let's get more, <laughs> get more court cases uh, settling this. And until the IRS comes out and releases guidance, you can probably treat it that way without fear of criminal consequences. Yeah, you might owe back taxes if they, you know, decide otherwise. But I think we're going to see people treating it like this going forward. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the proof of stake alliance, I believe, has been pushing for clarity the last couple of years since 2019. And if the whole community could come together and make this happen, that'd be great. Uh, I think the tentative court date is not until next year. So they kind of pushed that out at least a year out to get an answer. Um, as usual in the crypto industry, people are waiting for answers and it's just year by year. It's next year, next year, next year. But hopefully we can uh, get to the bottom of that soon. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the core argument that I've seen that does kind of make sense on the tax when you sell side is that if crypto is property, we don't typically tax property when you create it. You know, if you, if you buy some empty farmland and you plant a bunch of crops and now you have this new property, these new, you know, corn on the cob or whatever, the IRS doesn't tax you when the corn grows. They tax you when you sell it. <laughs> and so people are trying to make this analogy with, with staking where it's like, you know, you own these coins that are property and you're growing new property from it. And so really you should treat it the same way. You, when you sell that, you, of course, I said then, but you know, again, it's going to come down to what some 75 year old guy at the IRS thinks about it. And we'll see what they say. Yeah. I mean, no different than the cow on that farm eating has the baby, right? You don't pay taxes until you sell the baby, right? Exactly. Yeah. You got a new calf, right? The IRS doesn't, you know, run up and tax the calf. They wait until you, until you do something with it. So there is a credible argument there. I think it's just going to come down to do the regulators buy it. And we're also seeing other coins try to dodge taxes with staking. Recently, in the Definity ecosystem, there is a proposal put forward to change how ICP staking is done, where currently when you stake, you accumulate rewards in the form of this property known as maturity. And when your staking tokens reach a certain level of maturity, you can spawn new tokens. And so right now, people have been saying that they're paying taxes on this maturity, even though it's not a token, it's just like a property of your staked tokens. You know, they're somehow giving up, giving it a market value and, and getting taxed on it. So even though this is already sort of convoluted from a tax standpoint, they're trying to make it even more convoluted by saying that uh, there's sort of a randomness when you get your staking rewards, it's like plus or minus 10% or something randomly. So it's, you can't really give this maturity property a market value because there's like some randomness involved. And, you know, they're, they're trying to do things like that to just sort of further separate the income from the actual staking process. I mean, we're going to see all kinds of crazy loopholes and things like that going around in, in DeFi and in staking to try to delay the taxes. And ultimately, I think we're going to see a lot of people do some sort of buy and burn system like you have with MakerDAO, for instance, the revenue to maker holders is incurred through burning the tokens. The system is buying maker tokens and it's destroying them. So it makes all maker tokens more valuable. And uh, you don't realize any income from that. It's just whenever you sell, you've got a capital gain from the appreciation of the, the token price. That is probably the ideal situation for most crypto systems. And I think if, if a staking system can figure out how to model like that, then that's going to be the way to go.
All right. Well, in order to, we'll move on to the next macro update. And obviously when it comes to taxes, you have to be in profit. And a lot of people right now, we're 50 to 80% from the all-time highs, whether it's Bitcoin or they're altcoins. You know, what's happening? seems like we're just trending sideways and we're looking for answers. Everyone's looking for answers. Yeah. I mean, the market is, is, is down pretty bad since the early November highs. You know, you've watched your portfolio basically get cut in half or, or worse if you had a bunch of illiquid altcoins. The same is true for the U.S. stock market and especially the tech giants ha have uh, suffered a loss. So the macro situation is not looking great for crypto right now. Everyone is sort of looking at the Fed and at, and at Jerome Powell for saving their bags, right? They, they don't want them to raise rates and the Fed wants to raise rates to try to squash inflation. I mean, 7%, 8% inflation, wherever we're at right now, that's no joke. And the Fed is sort of caught in this bind where if they don't raise rates and they let inflation run too hot, that's going to cause a recession. But if they raise rates too fast and crash the market, then that could also cause a recession. So basically, they're tasked with gently raising rates in sort of a, a very thin margin of error such that it doesn't crash the market, but it also doesn't let inflation get too high. And if you look at the Fed's history, they're not very good at doing this. They're not very good at, at committing to what they say. First of all, if they say they're going to raise rates X amount of times, it's generally less than half of what they originally plan. And also, when it comes to their predictions about the economy, they don't have a great track record. I mean, they were saying inflation was transitory when this whole thing started. And it turns out, oh, it's not really transitory. And now you have to react to it. So it basically doesn't inspire confidence in their ability to manage this process gracefully looks like we're going to be in for some chaos in the markets in the future. So this has got everyone on edge and, you know, they're rightfully so. It's like, okay, you're going to own these illiquid crypto tokens that are trading on growth multiples to where like, you better hope this thing is profitable 20 years from now because that's how it's trading, right? And you better hope that that vision never wavers in the market. So it basically is very risky right now to have your entire portfolio exposed to these risk assets. And I think a lot of the selling has been people rebalancing their portfolio into less risky things, cash, gold, what, what have you. And so it makes sense why the crypto market is down. I think that's the narrative that we've got going. And the question is, going forward, is there going to be more pain or have we kind of reached a bottom? I've seen some fund managers on Twitter saying they think the bottom is near. They think now is not a bad time if you're looking to make investments. But I've also seen people say, we've still got some sort of macro recession coming and everything is going to take a dump. So it doesn't really matter what you own. You know, your portfolio is going to be hurt and you probably want to be cash heavy and you know, have a lot of uh, optionality in your portfolio, right? Put options, things like that, that are going to you know, at least hedge some downside. So my views on it are that it's not a great time to over leverage yourself. If your portfolio is 50% or more in risk assets or, or in crypto, you're probably right about where I would say is the comfortable level for long-term investing because you've got cash to maintain your portfolio. If we go to, into a multi-year bear market and you know pay your taxes and whatever you, you have to do, you've got cash to do that, but you've also got exposure to this exponential growth trend. I mean, we can't deny that crypto is like the internet in the 90s or, or like cell phones, you know, when they were first coming out. It is just on this exponential growth trend that sees no signs of slowing down. 
And I don't know where else people are going to get the returns in the world that they need to sustain themselves other than crypto. I mean, there's nothing else that is growing like this. And that's what makes crypto so attractive to the market is that everyone has access to it. You don't have to be you know, accredited investor or, or in a first world country. Anyone in the world can get access to this incredible growth market and participate in the ecosystem and become a developer, builder, et cetera. There's no other market like this. So I think when it comes to the crypto market right now, it's a great time to make long-term bets. If you want to find a project that you really believe in and you really think they've got a solid roadmap and a solid path to profitability, sure, now is a great time to buy it. But as long as you are not leveraging your portfolio beyond your, um, your risk tolerance. Risk tolerance, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's an interesting word. If you think that uh, we're going to suffer, say, another minus 50%, just think about how that affects your portfolio. And if you would be sitting there cool-headed during that drawdown. I mean, I know I was definitely not feeling great during this recent crypto drawdown, but I was also not feeling desperate and feeling like I had to you know, sell at the bottom or whatever. My portfolio was just fine because I'm not over my risk tolerance, right? I looked at my portfolio back in November and December at the end of the year, and I was like, yeah, I mean, if we take a minus 50% on this, it's not a big deal. I can still hold it you know, to do whenever I think this project is, is maturing. And that's really what, what you have to do when we're in a kind of market like this where there's so much uncertainty, but yet there's also so much growth potential. You don't want to miss out, but you also don't want to force yourself to sell at the bottom when you, you know, go over your risk tolerance. That's really key. It's managing your own psychology and it's managing risk. Well, isn't most of us just magic internet money? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 magic internet money that can make a lot of other magical internet money. It's magic, and that's why it's uh, growing so fast. Well, let's let's run into because obviously, while crypto's down, the NFT market seems to obviously be booming. It's bringing in probably the most users and adoption into the ecosystem as a whole, and people are continuously trying to trade these JPEGs, you know, for more and more money. What's happening? Yeah, that trend is still going hot. I mean, there's more and more projects launching every day. The total market cap of NFTs is still going up. I would encourage people to go to this website, nftgo.io. They have a nice stats page on the, the total NFT market. And they'll show you the market cap, trading volume, things like that. And, and that just includes Ethereum right now, which is mostly um, OpenSea. But there's other blockchains, of course, there's other NFT ecosystems. And so it's, yeah, growing really fast. This phenomenon, it's not going away. It seems like people thought NFTs was going to be a fad. They thought, you know, everything was going to become worthless at some point. I think we've sort of tapped into something where people want to spend money on this stuff. People want to buy art. They want to buy music, whatever, whatever it is. They want to flex their financial muscles by saying, oh, I own all this, all this NFT stuff. And we're also seeing more and more use cases for NFTs, like with gaming, you know, Axie Infinity, things like that, Metaverse. It just keeps growing of what you can do with this stuff. That really is the key for this ecosystem is just to continue to find more use cases. If you look at some of the newer chains, like say on Solana, I'm seeing a lot more new NFT projects on that chain than I'm seeing on Ethereum because people are getting really upset with the transaction fees, of course, on Ethereum layer one. It's still going to be some time before we mitigate that with, with uh, rollups. But... In the meantime, we've got these cheaper chains with ecosystems that are burgeoning. 
And I think that's going to potentially take some of these alt L1s into profit at some point from all that user activity. But yeah, the NFT market, wherever that's going right now, that's where you're going to want to rotate some funds into. I think uh, Proppy just spun off two Florida-based properties as an NFT as kind of a trial here. So it's very interesting to see where this is going, obviously, because I'm always said like real estate, you know, you should be able to walk into a house and literally buy it within seconds, right? I mean, all the information should be on the blockchain. The records should be immutable. Like you shouldn't need a title policy and you should be able to get, you know, a loan like instantly based on some profile right. and the value of the property. So 10 or 20 years out, I'm sure it'll be like that. You just roll in if you want to see it virtually or not and just push the button, I'll take it. And boom, minutes later, you're newer owner. Yeah. Yeah. That's the dream. And, you know, I don't think we're too far off from that. But yeah, this trend is going to keep going for a while. Um, if you're not into NFTs, I would say, even if you, you know, feel that it's kind of silly, start doing some research. I think you'll find that there's actually a lot of substance and a lot of use cases here for this technology. Like I said, you know, if you're worried about transaction fees or whatever, start playing around on Solana. There's a lot of uh, NFT projects coming out there and uh, it's pretty cheap to use. So anyone can go check this out for cheap right now. I appreciate coming on today. Obviously, until next time, everybody go ahead and subscribe. Also, you can follow Justin and myself on Twitter. The links will be below. And uh, any other closing words? Be careful with your funds in these uncertain times, but certainly crypto is not slowing down. It's here to stay and we are uh, moving at a very fast pace. So everyone come get involved. It's crazy. The Joe Robert Show.